What's up, TPN? It is I, Adam, with a bit of a administrative show note announcement, if you will. This is the week of TPNX, 21st, 22nd of April in Orlando, Florida at the International Airport and the Sea Terminal. This is super exciting for Matt, myself, all of our volunteers, our attendees, our airlines, our air carriers, our industry partners, the city of Orlando, the state of Florida, the United States of America, and the world writ at large. All right, maybe it's not that big, but it's a big deal anyways for us. We're super excited to host uh, TPNX job fair, trade show, party, good times, class reunion, you name it. That's what the X stands for. We're excited to host you. We're excited to share a lot of information with you this week. And leading up to that, you are about to get inundated with podcast after podcast after podcast. We do things a little differently at TPN and at TPNX, obviously. And this is no different this week with our podcast release schedule. You're going to get a ton of them before we have TPNX. So just be ready. Get your ears open and ready to listen. We're going to have... A bunch of recruiters on from a few of the legacy carriers that are going to be down there, as well as a few other uh, individuals who are showing up for airlines and industry partners who want to share a lot of detail and data with you to give you some TPNX hints, tips, tricks, tactics, techniques, procedures to go down and crush it while you're there and have a good time and and be as stress-free as possible. So uh, this is my administrative note before you start listening to this podcast and the other ones that are going to come out. So uh, keep your downloads on and make sure you get all those. And then uh, something that we never ask you to do, if you could go and leave a rating for the Pilot Network podcast. Five stars if you think we deserve it. Uh, If you don't think we deserve five stars, that's cool too. The more the merrier. Let's help all those pilots find uh, TPN out there to better their career and the career of our own and all that good stuff. All right, now I'm rambling. Enjoy this podcast and all the other podcasts that are coming out this week, and we'll see you at TPNX. Good morning, TPNers, and welcome to another episode of the Pilot Network Podcast. I'm Joe and I'm your host for today's show. Today's conversation is with Dr. Keith Roxo. Dr. Roxo is the Commercial Operations Director for Wingman Med. Wingman Med's an aviation medical consulting service, and if you hold or hope to hold an FAA medical, they are here for you. This is Keith's second time on the show. The first time was back on March 22nd, 2022, just about one year ago and he had a conversation with Matt that really sets the stage for a lot of what we're going to talk about today. If you did miss that episode, go ahead and check it out. But a little background on Keith, he is a Top Gun trained adversary pilot turned aerospace medicine physician. He has over 2,000 hours in a variety of high-performance military aircraft to include the F-18, the F-16, and the F-5. He holds multiple military flight instructor qualifications, an airline transport pilot certificate, and CFII. His medical qualifications include board certification in both aerospace and occupational medicine, and he is a HIMSS-qualified, FAA-designated senior aviation medical examiner. 
In the first half of our conversation today, we talk about navigating the VA disability claims process. So if you're separating from the military or know somebody who might be, stick around for that. We also talk about accessing your true VA disability benefits without putting your FAA medical at undue risk. In the second half of our conversation today, which begins at about the 25-minute mark, we do some scenario-based training. If you will, we walk through a scenario with a pilot who has a medical concern. In this case, that medical concern is sleep apnea. So if you have some curiosities or questions about that, definitely stick around. More generally, we talk about how to be proactive about your health to include seeing your doctor and treating issues as they come up. And we want to encourage all pilots to do exactly that. We want you to have long lives and long careers. We talk about the importance of a good AME and why a quick and easy uh, AME appointment is not necessarily your best plan. All that and a whole lot more. You can check out Wingman Med at wingmanmed.com where you can find out more about the services they offer and also check out their blog. It is really good. And Dr. Roxo is a contributor to that blog. They are gracious enough to cross-publish that blog on the TPN Pro section. So go ahead and head out to thepilotnetwork.com for that. You can also check out Wingman Med on LinkedIn, at Wingman Med on Twitter. And lastly, you can catch up with Wingman Med April 21st and 22nd at TPNX in Orlando, Florida. So head out to thepilotnetwork.com for more on that as well. One last thing before we get going, nothing we discussed today should be considered legal advice, nor should it be considered medical advice. This is for informational purposes only. Thanks for sticking around. Appreciate you joining us today. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Keith Roxo. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Really excited to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time. And I've been having a lot of fun getting to know your blog, uh, the Wingman Med blog, and your contribution to that blog. You have a number of articles that relate directly to what we're going to touch on today along with a lot of other stuff that I think people should know about direct primary care, et cetera. That's for another time, but things that I found really sure. interesting. So I wanted to start by wrapping up a previous conversation that you had with Matt. You guys touched on a lot of things. And one of the things that you guys touched on was for folks transitioning from the military to getting an FAA medical and flying in the civilian world, um, you guys touched on that, but I thought we could dive in today on that transition, including navigating the VA process. And as I found out, you guys have actually a service for folks who are going through this transition. So maybe the best way to begin is for, if, if you're willing, sort of just give us an overview of that service, that program that you guys have at Wingman Med and sort of the impetus for instituting that program. Certainly. And, and I'll start with the, the impetus. Um, so what it is, is a combined VA FAA consultation service, and it kind of builds on our standard FAA consultation service. And the reason why we started the uh, VA portion uh, just this past fall, actually, was that a very large percentage of our veteran clientele who were coming to us for assistance on their FAA medical, the issue stemmed from their VA disability. And whether it stemmed from you know, poor advice that they received from some well-intentioned VSO or, you know, kind of a runaway uh, doctor at the VA, do, not at the VA themselves, but the contract physicians that they use as part of the CNP exam process, uh, giving these diagnoses inappropriately. So people would claim things uh, 
unintentionally, accidentally get these diagnoses. But the way the law is written is you only get a VA disability for something if it is a current problem that causes a functional limitation. That's what the law says. So that's what the FAA goes by. So if you separate from the military and you put on your claim sleep disturbance because you think you have sleep apnea, but you haven't wanted to discuss it with the military, the problem is the VA is not going to give you a sleep study if you put sleep disturbance on your VA claim. They're going to give you a psychiatric evaluation, and then you're going to come out with a psychiatric diagnosis. And because a VA disability implies a current functional limitation, the FAA sees, wow, this guy has a current functional limitation for a mental health condition. Um, and it could, just, it could be anything. It, it, we see it more commonly with mental health issues, but it could be anything. It could be any type of issue. Um, so we saw that and we thought, okay, we can help people with this. Most of these people are not doing this intentionally. Um, most of them were being led down the wrong path by, you know, a well-intentioned VSO, or they gave power of attorney to some VSO who filled it out for them. Uh, so they didn't even realize some of the things that might've been put on their claim. They end up at these examinations, not understanding why they're being asked about certain things. And then the next thing they know, they get this decision letter that says, congratulations, you have a 90% disability with 60% for anxiety and, and PTSD. And they're like, wait, what? I don't have that. But then it causes a massive delay with their, with their FAA medical. So particularly last year when the FAA was sending out lots of letters to people about, hey, we noticed that your VA disability uh, was not re you know, reported to us. So historically, um, people were under the false impression that they did not have to disclose VA disability to the FAA. Well, last year has really proven that to not be the case. So kind of a confluence of events made us decide that we can help people through this process better uh, so that they don't get themselves in trouble with the FAA by accidentally getting these diagnoses that are going to cause problems. And then on the other side, we would have folks tell us, well, I don't want to report something to the FAA so I just am not going to claim it on the VA because if I get it with the VA, then I'll have to, uh, you know, report it to the FAA as well. And there's a couple of problems with that side as well. So on that end, technically, if you have the medical condition, you're still supposed to report it to the FAA regardless. So you might as well get the VA disability for it too, right? And it's really all about phrasing and how you how you couch it. So, for example, uh, and we have an article on this one on our blog. Uh, there was a guy that I flew with in Pensacola, and, you know, he contacted me, very concerned. He was a, a Part 121 pilot. He just got his VA disability rating, and he had what's called radiculopathy. So that's a nerve uh, pinch problem in his neck. And I said, well, let me guess, your radiculopathy uh, symptoms are only when you're in a high G left-hand turn when you're dogfighting. And he's like, yes, absolutely. And I said, yeah, the FAA doesn't care about that <laughs> because – how often are you going to fly your, you know, your Boeing or your Airbus in a high G left-hand turn while dogfighting? So he was able to articulate to both the VA, yes, I have this problem, but also to the FAA, it doesn't affect me while I'm flying uh, civilian aircraft. So, you know, we were able to get him through both processes, no problem. And that ended up being kind of the impetus for let's help people navigate both of these in a way where they're not leaving any money on the table and they're not hiding anything but they're not coming out with accidental stuff that's going to cause problems. Wow, that is 
really fascinating and definitely just the one example you gave is is already a great reason for folks to get in touch with you if they're going to go through this process and certainly unringing the bell so to speak is way more work than never ringing it in the first place or or being mindful about how we go through that process so what for somebody who's going to separate from the military what's when should they get in touch with you guys and when might they uh, want to begin sort of the VA claims process and what is that what does that timeline look like for folks ideally the first thing I want to say is that our process is not inexpensive it does cost a decent amount of money so it's really for the person who wants to have that near complete total control over their disability process the other thing that people need to understand is that it takes a lot of work on the part of the client themselves so those are the two most important things to consider uh, you have to want to have that full control over your VA disability process, and you have to be willing to put forth the work to get it done because we don't do the exams. We're a consulting service only. You still have to get your doctors to do the exams in a way that will meet the criteria for VA disability. And we provide those guidelines to you so that you can pass them on to your physician. Um, that doesn't mean all physicians will want to follow some checklist that some other doctor provides. So you know, the easy button is submit your stuff to the VA, the VA sends you for the CMP exams, um, and you just show up for the exams. Uh, the downside is you lose control over the process. So going back to when should somebody start? About 12 months from when they want to separate is a good time to start because we have to review all those records. That takes a couple of weeks usually. And we have to create a series of recommendations. So we kind of look at where do we where do we rate them now based on the disability criteria and the documentation that they provided and what needs to be addressed to either increase that rating or prove the rating that should be there. And going back to what is a VA disability, you have to have the diagnosis of the condition. It has to have either occurred while you were in the military or made worse by your time in the military. Uh, and it has to be relatively recent. So if you had something that happened five years ago and you've never been back to the doctor for it since, you might meet the diagnosis, but you don't meet the recency. And so those things all need to be updated. And that's what the VA does with their C&P exams, uh, compensation and pension exams, is they're looking to fill the gaps in the information. Well, that's what we're doing. We're looking to help you fill the gaps yourself so you don't have to go to those C&P exams and kind of roll the dice with what those guys are going to give you. If I were separating from the military and I was wanting to obtain an FAA medical, I would absolutely be calling you guys because from what you've already indicated, there's a lot of missteps along the way that you might not even, even if you don't have any significant issues, you might step in a trap that you didn't even know was there. So, so do you recommend right. everybody at least gets in touch and, you know, you can maybe evaluate things. Maybe you don't need us. Maybe you do but at least get in touch and let's talk about it. So I think anybody who is concerned should give us a call, not necessarily everybody who needs us. For example, if you know that not everybody has major issues, right? The longer people are in, the more likely they are to have some issues. Um, but if you know, well, all I have is knee pain from that one time I blew out my knee on my, my paratrooper training. But if that's literally all you have and that's all you plan on claiming, that's not going to be a problem. You don't need to waste your time, energy, or money 
you know, working with us. If you're kind of on the fence, um, by all means, we do that free 15 minute consultation. I will admit the VA calls tend to go a little bit longer because it is a more complicated process. Um, so we try not to, you know, just rush people off the phone, but we're more than willing to discuss stuff. Uh, just yesterday, actually, I had a gentleman from Pensacola call me. We talked about it. We talked about his issues. And I said, look, I don't, I don't think you need us. Now the question for you is, do you want us? And then I had to go back to, it's a lot of money. You will get that money back, but it's also a lot of work. So do you want to put that work in knowing that you might be able to get the same amount of money from the VA disability rating without us? Um, and your FAA part is not going to be that complicated. So, um, so he elected not to sign up with us. Um, and that's totally fine. You know, we, you know, I've said it to a few other people. I don't, I don't know if I said it on this podcast previously, but my number one goal is to keep people flying. My number two goal is to build and maintain a good reputation. And then my number three goal is to be a profitable business. Now, in reality, people can kind of call me out on that because if I'm not a profitable business, I can't do number one or number two. But I'm not going to take your money today and put that third priority up at the top at the expense of that good reputation. So that's kind of how I look at every scenario. All right. I, I appreciate the clarification there. Are there any particular common missteps, perhaps, or common conditions that aren't getting documented properly on a regular basis that you see, you know, frequently that, that tend to be more problematic than others? Is there anything that sticks out for you? Yes. Some of the missteps is claiming things that you don't actually have. So um, I was in combat 10 years ago, so I'm going to claim PTSD. Well, do you have PTSD now? No, I'm fine. Okay, then we don't want to claim PTSD now. It's, it's okay to have PTSD 10 years ago or five years ago or two years ago. As long as you're better now, we can get you your FAA medical. That's not a big deal. But if you claim it now and the VA gives it to you now, then you're going to struggle to get your FAA medical because you need to be better now to get your medical. And by getting that disability, like I mentioned earlier, implies that you're not better right now. So then you have to show that it was either a poor diagnosis or that you've been through treatment and recovered. It's kind of like I use an example of a broken ankle. So if you broke your ankle five years ago and you walk into the AME now and you can walk around, jump up and down, no problem, it's not going to be an issue. But if you broke your ankle a couple of weeks ago, well, maybe you're not strong enough to fly. Maybe your ankle's not good enough to fly. So there are time you know, kind of time and time is not the only thing, but there are some time limits associated with things. They want to see how stable somebody is. And with mental health stuff in particular, it's very hard to just see that in a patient in a, in a short appointment with the AME. So then they rely on uh, documentation from other doctors. Same thing with things like heart disease uh, or neurological problems. It's hard to see all of those issues in an AME exam. So they're going to want, you know, the FAA is going to want to see documentation from other physicians that says, okay, yes, he had a heart attack um, six months ago. His heart's doing fine now. He can pass a stress test. His echocardiogram looks good. His heart is fit, right? Same thing with any of the mental health issues. So that's one of the mistakes we see is that people, they want to claim things for the future, but that's not how it works. You can only claim something for what you have right now. So that's where the biggest common you know, misconception is. I want to claim things for the future, but that's not how the process works. Another common one is people will sometimes think, 
well, VA disability is designed to compensate me for all the physical pain and suffering that I had while I was in the military. And again, that's not true. It's designed to compensate you because you're not functionally 100% a human being legally per the disability law. So if you're not functionally 100%, they will compensate you a certain amount of money because it limits your job prospects in the civilian world. So that's where the math and the disability compensation comes from. And so it's this bureaucratic math formula that you know goes up or down depending on what you have. And the most common errors in documentation is incomplete documentation. And it's not the fault of the military physician that you have seen. It's because if you come to me with knee pain and you want me to help you get better, that exam and documentation protocol and whether or not I get an MRI or, a, or an X-ray is based on how am I going to assess what you have and get you better. But a disability examination has very specific requirements and most doctors are not trained in disability uh, evaluation. So the disability evaluation, yeah, it wants to know about pain, but it wants to know, okay, where is the pain? How much pain is there? What is the range of motion? Was that range of motion measured with an actual device or was it guessed at? So those kind of things matter. If I'm evaluating your knee for pain, yes, I'm gonna document, um, you know, yes, he has pain on the lateral side consistent with X. Um, but I didn't necessarily measure the range of motion with a measuring device and document that. Um, whereas if I did, that might throw you into a completely different category when it comes to the disability rating. Is it 10% or is it 20%? Well, that can be based on, did I get an MRI that shows something or did I not get an MRI? Because for treatment purposes, maybe I didn't need an MRI, but for disability purposes, perhaps the MRI would have been helpful. So. That is a common, I shouldn't say an error, but that's a common thing where people think, well, I've been to the doctor five times for my knee. Why, why, is, why are you telling me that this is only gonna be a 10% rating? It's not the doctor's fault. They were trying to treat it. They weren't trying to evaluate it from a disability perspective. So that's when we'll come back with our recommendations and say, hey, if you think that you would meet greater than 10%, this is what needs to be documented. And then you have to go back to your doctor and ask them, hey, can you document these types of things? And we want to be very careful here. We're not telling the doctor what to say. We're telling the doctor what different things they should be commenting on. I think that's a really good distinction to make. And again, um, you know, just uh, a really good way to advocate for if you're in a situation where you think this might be prudent for you to give wingman met a call and, you know, asked the question. And if it, even if it does cost some money, I, I look at this in the same vein as I look at training, education, uh, interview prep, you name it. Uh, if, if you're in the situation where it's needed, it's an investment. Um, if you don't need it, that's a different conversation. But um, if you're in the situation where you need it, 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 it's an investment that and investments by definition pay themselves off in time. I wanted to ask uh, kind of a selfish question a little bit. I have a friend who is, he's in the guard. He's not an aviator. He's separating, you know, in a few years, he's getting out. Um, but he's been full time with the guard for, he'll have his 20 here in a few years. And he did some active duty time, you know, was, was deployed at, at one point. But he called me up and said, hey, Joe, I, I want to learn to fly uh, either starting soon or after I get out. And... 
uh, I was thinking about him as I was preparing for our conversation. Have you worked with anybody who wasn't a previous aviator in the military who's hoping to fly on the civilian side? Have you done any dealt with any folks like that at all? Absolutely. So we are focused primarily on the aviation medicine world, but we're not focused exclusively on existing pilots. So anyone who wants to be a pilot, whether they're active duty, leaving the military, or they're a civilian, and they're going for their very first medical, that's what we're here for. And so in that case, for the people who are active duty military or, um, you know, reserves or National Guard, it doesn't matter if they're a pilot in the military, we will help them with their VA disability in conjunction with the FAA medical. What we don't do is we don't just do VA disability for anybody. So we do VA disability specifically for people looking for FAA certification. Um, and part of that is because if you just want to maximize your VA disability and that is your only goal, which is, is a goal for some people who are not pursuing you know, aviation or top secret clearances and things like that, then we are not the best option because we are not going to try and convince you to claim things that we don't think you should claim. So, um, you know, we, our goal is to maximize somebody's true VA disability, even if, if you have a condition and it will impact your medical, we will help you get that VA disability. And we will explain that how you need to recover in order to get your FAA medical. So that's our goal, maximize the true VA disability um, and ensure as smooth of a process as possible for the FAA medical. I think this idea of accessing your true benefits is really important. I, I think that even if you're not gonna be a pilot, most people have aspirations in their life and a lot of people, most of us don't necessarily know 100% what we might or might not want to be doing in 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. We might find ourselves with some ambition that we didn't know we had before. And now some diagnosis from our past is getting in the way, whether or not it's flying. So right. I think that this is a really important thing to consider just in general. Um, maximizing, you know, a disability benefit might not be maximizing your own uh, potential earning potential included. For sure. And there are sometimes we have to have that conversation with folks where, you know, an extra 10% on your VA disability is potentially worth hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime, but a class one medical is worth millions. And so, um, you know, stretching for something that's not true to get a slightly higher disability rating is not always the most financially prudent thing to do. Um, and personally, I, I'm also opposed to that stretching of the truth because, you know, we're not trying to defraud the government or anything like that. Um, and we don't want to be associated with trying to help people do that. And, and to be honest, that's why I, initially when we started the company, we discussed VA disability and I didn't want to do it. I was opposed to it because I kind of had this negative impression of companies that, you know, are looking to assist veterans with their disability. Hey, we'll help you get to 100% and we'll take 10% of your earnings for the first year or something like that. And to me, it just seemed very sketchy. And so I was initially opposed to doing VA disability until we saw so many clients who got led down the wrong path by someone else. And I was the one in the company who brought it back up again and said, you know what, maybe I was wrong. <laughs> maybe we should be doing this so we can help people do it the right way. Well, like any any good pilot, you know, you're always willing to learn and always willing to course correct. So, you know, well done. And, and I think that 
sometimes when uh, you don't see the thing that is needed in the marketplace, that's an opportunity. And you guys definitely, I think, are filling a really important role there. I'd actually like to start transitioning to the second half of our conversation, but I want to make sure we didn't leave anything out. Was there anything else you think is pertinent to this conversation that we didn't cover? No, I think we got the the main points. One of the things that you had talked about was not stretching the truth in order to get an extra 10% now and costing yourself down the road. And I think that this idea actually applies perfectly to what we're going to talk about next. And the sort of the idea behind that is that I want to encourage pilots to see their doctor, to be proactive and not just reactive about their own health. And I think a lot of pilots are afraid to do that. And you can imagine a scenario where a pilot might be reluctant to get treated for something or bring something up in a already pre-scheduled doctor's appointment because mm -hmm. they're afraid of quote unquote, losing their medical. Right. And I think this is another scenario where you might be um, not reporting things now in order to not have a lapse in medical, but it could cost you big in terms of health lifespan health span and uh, your your medical in the future. So right. with that said, you have agreed to sort of walk us through a scenario and I really appreciate that. And I'm gonna kind of just set this up for the listener. I want to walk through a sort of the life of a fictitious pilot who has a medical concern. And, um, and this is strictly civilian at this point, they have an FAA medical, they're say an airline pilot and they have a medical concern and they want to navigate that process intelligently. All right, so the scenario is I am the uh, example pilot, we'll say. It's March right now, which it actually is, uh, and my FAA medical is due in June, so I've got a few months yet. My spouse has been saying for months that I'm snoring at night. On top of that, I've been noticing that I'm tired during the day and I don't feel as sharp as I felt maybe a year ago. Maybe, you know, my memory's not quite as sharp, that kind of thing. I'm worried I might have sleep apnea. And if I do, I'd like to address it because I know how dangerous it is for my health. More than that, I just want to feel better. I want some energy back and I want to feel that sharpness again. I want to feel like I can perform at peak uh, performance for my job and for my life. That all said, I'm afraid of quote unquote, losing my medical. Okay, so that's the scenario, and I want to say before we start that none of this is legal advice, none of this is medical advice, this is information purposes only. This is as an example to help encourage our pilots to live the healthiest lives they can. So uh, with that said, uh, what are sort of the first steps for our example pilot? And, um, and then maybe the first thing, do they need to stop flying right away? So do they need to stop flying? Well, that depends. Um, for every single flight that a pilot does, whether it's recreationally or professionally, they're supposed to self-certify that they're safe to fly. So if they are safe to fly, then yes, they can still fly, right? Um, if I have tendonitis in my elbow, but it's not so bad that I can still fly, I can fly. If I break my arm, I probably shouldn't fly, right? So the pilot has to determine that for themselves. Am I still safe to fly? Now, what are the first steps? Well, the first steps, in my opinion, are to address things early and address things often. And that's because the longer you hide stuff, the more it's likely to bite you later. 
as we all get older, we are all going to eventually have medical problems. And eventually the FAA will find out about a particular medical problem and they're going to want documentation. And if that documentation references other medical problems of a historical nature that you have never reported to them, they're not going to be happy about that. As a professional pilot myself, before going to medical school, I am very familiar with that fear of the best I can do at the flight physical is still fly, right? I know that there's this concern of losing my medical. Most of those concerns are unfounded if you are going to the right type of doctors and you're seeking the right type of advice. There are AMEs out there who are not very good. Um, there are AMEs out there who are amazing. Um, there are regular doctors out in the civilian world, family medicine doctors who are uh, very good, and there are some who are not very good. So it's sometimes difficult to tell until you actually need their help. Um, but in general, get help early, get help often, and avoid these prolonged delays in reporting things to the FAA. Now, in this case in particular, um, sleep apnea is hands down the easiest special issuance you can get from the FAA. So people are very afraid of it, but in reality, they should be more afraid of flying fatigued than they should be of going through the process of getting the special issuance. Now, that doesn't mean it's not without some work. The paperwork is very specific. You have to be doing the treatment protocol that your physician recommends. Um, the treatment protocol that your physician recommends has to make sense with the FAA ones. But as long as you're doing that and you are improving, you're no longer having symptoms because your treatment is actually working um, and you fill out the paperwork, you will absolutely get your medical issued on the day of your appointment if your AME knows what they're doing. So that's when going to the right AME uh, counts. Um, one of the guys that I flew with out in Fallon, um, again, before medical school, uh, he came to me recently, uh, sleep apnea, going for his first FAA medical as he was retiring from the military. And I helped him out, gave him the plan. Um, and I said, just make sure you call the AMEs and ask them first. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, some, you know, kind of like, you know, not every pilot is the best pilot. So call around, make sure they know what they're doing. And Sure enough, the first one he called, um, one of the office staff said, oh, no, your sleep apnea, you have to be deferred and you're not going to get your medical that day. He called me all scared and I said, they don't know what they're talking about. Trust me, call another one. And so he called another one and he actually spoke to the physician at that one. And that physician said, as long as your paperwork is correct, then yes, you'll get your medical that day. So that was what I had told him. So now he was confident that this doctor knew what they were doing. He went in, he had all of his paperwork, he got the exam, he got his medical that day, everything worked out great. So that's one of the things with sleep apnea. You have to be treated and you have to have your paperwork correct. That's kind of universal for all of the medical issues. You have to be treated, you have to be doing well, you have to have your paperwork in order. Um, that's kind of the trifecta to get through the FAA for almost anything. The paperwork's gonna vary depending on what the condition is. Um, and what they want to see. So sleep apnea is going to be different for, you know, than a heart attack, which is going to be different than, you know, a kidney donation or something like that. All those things are going to require different information that convey that, that medical condition is doing well. And that's what's important. The FAA cares more about knowing about it and knowing that it's mitigated. Uh, that's what they care more about.
knowing the issue and that it's mitigated. I brought up sleep apnea specifically for this reason as our example. A few years ago, I had a friend who we were hanging out one day and he said, oh yeah, I just got diagnosed with sleep apnea and I've never felt better. And I was like, what? And he's a pilot. And I said, are you flying? He's like, oh yeah, I got my medical the day I went in. And he told me about the process and I was like, holy smokes. I think there are so many pilots out there who are avoiding in some mm -hmm. way, admit it, even just admitting to themselves that perhaps they have it. Right. And if you want to scare yourself, go look up, you know, WebMD sleep apnea. I mean, that's way scarier than yeah. getting it treated and taking care of it. And this friend of mine who described this process to me, not only described how easy it was, you know, to get certified, but he was like, man, I, I've never felt better. I, I, I can't remember the last time I felt so good. And he was a young man. He was in his 20s. And he just, the way his jaw sat, he was going to have sleep apnea. There was no two ways about it. He was fit. He was lean. And that's just the way it was. And, and it's been a big boon for his life. So I appreciate you um, just kind of out of the gate, dispelling some of the fear for folks there. I can't... I, I'm going to go off script here just a little bit because I thought of a question as you were talking. Would you recommend in any situation that people have an AME as their primary doctor? I had my first AME actually had a primary care practice and I saw him at a primary care clinic and he used to be of one opinion. And when we met, he was of a different opinion, but I would be curious to hear what you think about that. What I think is most important is to have a good doctor and we hear a lot of people, whether it's in our professional lives as pilots or through our work as wingman med, we hear people talk about, well, I have my, my actual doctor that I talk to about my medical problems. And then I have my AME doctor that knows absolutely nothing. Um, and I don't think that's a good way to go. Cause going back to what I said before, eventually everyone has a medical problem. And then you have historical records that are going to show that you have been lying to the FA for a long time. And that is not a good a good way to go into asking for, you know, permission to fly again from the FAA. So I think that that is perfectly acceptable if that doctor is good and knows what they're doing. If they're not a good doctor, then no, that's probably not a good idea. But then it's not a good idea, not because they're your primary care and an AME. It's just not a good idea because they're not a good doctor. That's a, that's Pretty much good advice with any professional that you deal with. Just do your due diligence, and if they're good at what they do, they'll be a good resource. Appreciate you weighing in on that one. The next question I had in this regard would be, for our example pilot, this is something that had been going on for a few months, and let's just assume that they weren't sort of actively avoiding anything. It's just kind of, it's been a, a low-level concern for them that's now just kind of finally reached the point where they think, you know, I really should do something. I should, really should see my doctor. If they go into their doctor, their primary care doctor, and say, hey, I'm having some potential, you know, I'm worried I might have sleep apnea, and they describe the symptoms, and the doctor says, hey, how long has this been going on? Well, kind of like six months or maybe even a year that my wife's noted, you know, said I've been snoring. Do they need to be worried about getting in trouble, quote unquote, with the FAA uh, for telling their primary care doctor that, or how might we be prudent to manage that type of no, they don't really need to be worried about getting in trouble. Again, the FAA's priority is to find out how you're doing and how well that condition is mitigated, right? So they just want to know about it and know that it's better. So they know that for a lot of these things, symptoms were probably presenting in advance. Um, they're just happy to know that it's being treated now. Um, and the FAA medical division 
despite sometimes sending what appear to be very scary letters, um, they, they really aren't out to get anyone. Their job is to keep the sky safe. And they're a bureaucratic organization, a regulatory organization. And if, if they don't send scary sounding letters, then people just aren't going to reply and do what they say. So they kind of have to, you know, have both the carrot and the stick, right? You know, they've, they've got your medical they'll give you, but they'll take it away if you're not answering their questions kind of thing. So they, they kind of have to play both sides. But the FAA medical department, it is run by doctors, literally the senior most people in the uh, aerospace medical certification division are doctors. So we know many of those doctors. They're all very good people. They Their goal is to work with pilots. They want to help pilots but they have to keep the skies safe. So they care more about knowing that you're better than they do about getting you in trouble because, oh, you didn't tell us about this six months ago when you first noticed it. They don't really care about that. I think that's a really important point because I could see, a, I could imagine a scenario where a pilot says, well, you know, I really want to be seen about it, but man, it's too late because I've, I've waited a little bit. Go see mm-hmm. your doctor. And w- one other point that occurs to me with, everything that you've talked about today, the VA stuff, the FAA medical stuff, and I know things that you've mentioned in your blog and, and even with with Matt, documentation's the key. The FAA doesn't know anything that you don't tell them. They don't they can't just access your medical records, right? I know this is a point that you've made before. So if you want them to have good documentation, multiple visits over time to your normal doctor with good documentation is the best way to do that, which requires that you see your doctor. Which That's is right. a lot easier if you have a good one. I'm very fortunate to have a great primary care doc. Um, mm-hmm. So when I go to him, I, I'm, I'm never really nervous. I always know that he's going to um, you know, put me on a path to success. Let's assume that our example pilot is diagnosed with sleep apnea. What, And we don't need to go into all of the detail here, but what might that process look like for our example pilot? They're, they go into their primary care doc. The, they do maybe a sleep study. You can, you know, correct any of this, and and then they're diagnosed with sleep apnea. What do they have to do next to uh, get their to to clear it with the FAA? Either now when they find out, or at their next medical exam. Sure. So the one of the big distinguishing factors with sleep apnea is yes, it is diagnosed via a sleep study. That's the kind of the gold standard. Then they have to get what's on a called a treatment protocol. So the FAA has certain requirements. Above a certain threshold, they require a certain type of treatment um, to be most effective. And that's assuming you're not having a surgical procedure. Below a certain threshold, they will allow for a variety of things, whether that's a dental device, weight loss, you know, a variety of things. And there has to be a minimum of 30 days of treatment followed up by a re-evaluation to determine how your treatment is doing. So with that new diagnosis, minimum 30 days of treatment so that you have to have the initial sleep study, all the paperwork filled out with that 30-day reevaluation to assess how you're doing now, whether you're on a positive airway pressure device like a CPAP or whether you're using a dental device, probably didn't get surgery within 30 days and recover already. That All that information goes into the paperwork. And as long as you are meeting the treatment goals in at the end of that 30-day period, boom, go in and get a new medical. And what I always tell people is, oh, well, my medical's you know, good until you know, such and such date. Well, not really. You have a new issue that the FAA does not know about. Once you discover the new issue, get the new issue taken care of, and just go get a new medical right now. People 
frequently asked, well, how am I supposed to tell the FA or can I just wait until the next one? And there are those that will say, yes, technically, if you're meeting the requirements, you can wait until the next one. My preference is just go in for a new exam now and get it done. Um, we do get that question a lot. Hey, I was just diagnosed with such and such. So what do I need to do? I expire eight months from now. No, you expired the day you realized you had that disease. So, you know, now again, there's, that's not black and white, right? That's, that's a little bit gray. Uh, it is black and white. If you broke your leg, you're done flying with a broken leg, but do you, you need to get a new medical? Probably not. If you have, if you're, you know, under 40 flying off a of class three and your medical is good for five years, you break your leg, you're down for a few months. Okay. Your leg's fine. You can go back to flying. Do you really need to get a new medical? No. Were you diagnosed with diabetes? Yes. You need to stop flying and you need to get a new medical because that has very significant concern for loss of um, control in, in a flying scenario. So it really depends. And that's, you know, where we can answer questions like that. Um, people are generally scared to ask their AME because then they're, they feel like they're telling their AME. Um, we are not your AME. We are a consultation service. Um, so we make recommendations. It's up to the pilot to decide if they want to follow our recommendations or not. But yeah, in this case, you know, they, it's kind of that gray area. If they're meeting the treatment protocol, technically they're going to get issued their special issuance. So they should be able to keep flying. But it is always my recommendation to just go in and get a new exam as soon as you can. Thanks for clarifying that. I want to offer up the alternative scenario, which I think people also might fear. What if I go to my doctor, I get the sleep study, and I'm not diagnosed with sleep apnea? What Pandora's box have I now opened? And what would be the next step for me? Yeah, so that's a, a good scenario to poke around because fatigue is a leading cause of aviation-related accidents. So the FAA is very keen on figuring out what is causing the fatigue. They do not like a generic diagnosis of insomnia or fatigue. And while you can argue with a neurologist all day that those are primary diagnoses, even when I do that, I can almost always get them to come to the understanding that there is something causing that fatigue or something causing that insomnia, whether it's shift work, um, poor sleep hygiene, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, working out too close to, you know, to bedtime, um, you know, drinking alcohol too close to bedtime, things like that, that are going to cause sleep disruptions, cause fatigue or cause insomnia, you know, new baby at home. <laughs> do you have insomnia or do you have a new baby at home? You know, <laughs> so, sure. You know, you don't have a brain problem. You have a baby problem, you know. So so really it's it's now you kind of have to drill down. Why do I have this fatigue? And a good primary care physician should be able to help with that. There are some scary things out there. Now, a sleep study will generally pick up some of the scary things like narcolepsy. That's very uncommon. And to be honest, if somebody has narcolepsy, they should not be flying aircraft, right? The things that will prevent you from getting a medical in general are things that people should not be flying with. You should fear the condition much more for your own safety and for your own health than you should fear losing your medical due to one of those exactly. conditions. Got it. So you already answered when we should contact our AME. Uh, in terms of documentation, I know that You've talked a little bit about this, but when I go to my primary care doctor, it's basically that treatment plan, and then 
I come back in 30 days with my primary care doctor. We see how it's going. And that's kind of the documentation that I bring into the to the AME. Is that right? Or is there a specific FAA documentation I should be doing throughout that process? So for sleep apnea in particular, they have very specific paperwork that they would prefer you to use. You don't have to use it, but then the doctor's note has to have all of the same information. So a lot of times it's like, hey, just pre-fill out, you know, this paperwork. Um, and that's usually what we recommend. So when we provide somebody the plan for sleep apnea, we just give them the FAA documents directly. Um, there are other things uh, where the FAA has a plan and we don't like their paperwork. So, uh, cause it's confusing and it's not ordered in a good manner. And so we say, hey, here's everything we want your doctor to write in their note and we don't give them the FAA specific paperwork. So uh, certain things are great and certain things aren't. This is one where their paperwork is actually quite good and it just makes it very easy for the physician to check boxes and fill in numbers in the appropriate, in the appropriate place. Where would a pilot go about acquiring this documentation uh, for their primary doc? So for sleep apnea in particular, and a lot of the documentation, you can just Google FAA AME guide. Um, there's a lot of information in there, but you have to realize this is a guide written for doctors. So just because the information is out there doesn't mean it's easy to understand. But like I tell people all the time, Nobody truly needs our service, right? We're a consultation service. Our goal is to help things go smoother and quicker. Um, one of the things I also tell people is that we don't guarantee success. If you come to us with a problem and we recommend you go see certain physicians in order to prove to the FAA that you're safe to fly, we cannot necessarily predict that those evaluations will actually come out well. So what we guarantee is expertise and efficiency. So our goal is to limit the amount of time that it takes to get through the certification process. So there are people who are very willing to take lots of time to read the AME guide and Google what the words mean and figure it out for themselves. And they can say, ha ha, I didn't need wingman net. Well, you didn't. It probably took you four to six months to figure out how to do it. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's a personal choice, right? It, it, it's a personal choice. One thing that I'll tell people, especially folks looking to get into the Part 121 world, is that you don't lose first-year pay. You will always get first-year pay. But with a mandatory retirement age, you lose last-year pay. So a six-month delay in your medical is worth $150,000 to $200,000. Is that worth paying us to help get that medical on the day of your exam and, or within two to four months as opposed to six to nine months. Well, I can do the math on that without even taking my socks off. So uh, I, in one of your recent articles, I, I remember, your, uh, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but you said something like every time the FAA asks a question, it takes three to four months for you to get mm -hmm. your medical. Yep, so it does. I think, it, I think that's all of the um, encouragement one needs to uh, give you guys a call if a medical issue pops up. I know for sure for me, if I have something pop up, you guys are gonna be the the first stop. I really appreciate you clarifying a lot of that. That would kind of, I think, encompass that whole scenario um, for folks. And I, I hope it encouraged them to go see their primary doc, not fear their AME. And when you're asking other pilots for a good AME, don't ask them for the one that's gonna shuttle you through, ask them for the one who's prudent and asks the right questions and can tell you the documentation you need, because that's really what makes a good AME. And, and you've talked a lot about that. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. We are coming up on time here. And 
that was all I have for us for now. Did you, was there anything I missed in that scenario that you wanted to mention before we wrap up? No, I don't think so. Just to touch on what you said about, you know, the AME recommendations, we, we do see it a lot and we hear it a lot. Like I, I want to go to a low threat AME and you don't, you want to go to a good AME. You want to go to a thorough AME, one that knows what they're doing, because if all you know is the low threat AME, what are you going to do when you actually have a problem? That guy's not going to help you. He doesn't have time. He's so busy just pumping through people. He doesn't have time to deal with complicated cases. So when you have something like sleep apnea, where you could get your medical issued if you did everything properly, he's not going to take the time to walk you through it. And he's not going to take the time to look over your paperwork. He's just going to defer you to the FAA. And now you just bought three to six months minimum. Such a great point. And the things that they do in that AME appointment every year, like blood pressure, even if your blood pressure is high, if I understand it correctly, it's that's a super easy condition to manage with mm -hmm. the FAA. So I think people fear that, and that's the last thing they should be feared. I mean, you want to keep your blood pressure under control, but don't fear right. being a little high on any one particular medical. Well, Keith, I really appreciate your time today. I learned a lot. I'm definitely going to go back and take some notes for myself, and I hope that our listeners uh, like I said, are encouraged to see their doc and uh, get in touch with you guys if they have any other, uh, if they have any medical issues come up. So unfortunately, I won't be running into you at TPNX, but I hope you have a fun time there and that you can connect with some of our listeners there. Anything else before we wrap up? Uh, not really. I, I guess the last thing I'll throw out is people don't necessarily have to wait until they have a problem to call us. We do have what we call a subscription service. So people who have a current valid medical, um, they can sign up for our subscription service and it gives them access to us, you know, pretty much any time. You know, if they want to send an email, set up a phone call, uh, we can do that. And then it, it also doubles as a bit of a insurance policy because we only do one free 15 minute consultation. After that, it has to be, you know, a service. And so if you wait until you have a problem, well, now you might need that full consultation, which can be a little expensive. But if you're a subscription user, the insurance part is it automatically includes a full record review and case preparation service as part of the subscription. So if you come to us and you don't have any problems and then six months later you develop a problem, you're in a car accident or, you know, you have some other medical things show up or you get concerned about sleep apnea. Well, we're already on the hook to help you out. And so that's that's another thing to consider is people don't have to wait until they have a problem. Now, this is primarily designed for folks who either have complicated issues that they have to go back to the FAA every year with, with advanced documentation, or perhaps for the older pilot who is starting to get concerned about his medical conditions. Um, that's kind of what it's designed for, but anybody can take advantage of our subscription service and have access to us whenever they have questions. Awesome. You know, as pilots, we mitigate risk in all kinds of ways. One of those is we should absolutely plan to have a lapse in medical at some point in our career. It's going to happen, so be ready for it when it does, to the extent that we can be. Well, once again, Keith, really appreciate your time. I'm going to uh, include all of the uh, links to your website, your blog, all of your socials for Wingman Med in the show notes. Uh, so thanks again, and to all of our listeners, keep the shiny side up, be safe, stay healthy. And we'll see you next time. Yes, yes.